chief the, of staff. Yeah, or the vizier, you know, the... The royal vizier. Yeah, the royal vizier, okay? I kind of like that title. You like that? Yeah, like I think that? I, could, I... I wish my title at Coming Home Network was Grand Royal vizier. vizier. It looks cooler than whatever's on your actual business card. Yeah. Shorter, too. I think it says Grand Inquisitor now, actually. <laughs> well, I better okay. watch what I say. Yes. Hello and welcome to another hair-raising episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. And if you want to find out more about what we do, uh, which is very much related to helping to explain Catholic things to people who uh, don't really understand what Catholic things are about, please do visit us, chnetwork.org. Again, chnetwork.org. Especially click on that Connect button uh, because we would love to see you in the online community. Ken, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. Good to see you, Matt. All right. No, you're doing well. Superman does good, Ken. But well, I do good, too. I mean, it, I can okay. leap buildings in a single bound. Is that good or is that just I think well? that works. You, that are, uh, you are plowing through this text like a locomotive today. Faster than a speeding so. bullet, actually. So with your superhuman <laughs> skills, uh, your Kryptonian <laughs> powers, you're going to basically take all the stuff we've said about Peter in the New Testament and trying to figure out how to make it all fit together. We've hit on a lot of different ways that Peter shows up um, yeah. in, in individual episodes, but today is kind of the big picture. It's kind of the thousand foot view of what do all these things together tell us about Peter? Yes. We've been looking at Peter in the New Testament, uh, in the in the New Testament, and today is kind of a review and roundup and finishing off the basic biblical material on Peter, okay? So it's going to be a summation, it's going to be a recap, and we will breeze through parts of it. Um, first then, you and I looked at the extraordinary prominence of Peter in the gospel narratives. That's where we began. The extraordinary prominence of Peter in the gospel narratives. And I think there's no doubt about it, Peter appears in the gospels as first among the 12 disciples. I don't think there's any way to argue around that. Peter is mentioned almost seven times as often as any of the others, that is, of the original 12. In almost all of the important events in the Gospels, there's Peter in the middle of it. Whenever the disciples are listed, Peter's name comes first in the list. Whenever the inner circle of Peter, James, and John is mentioned, well, guess who's mentioned first? It's always Peter, James, and John. It's never John, James, and Peter, or James, John, and Peter. Sometimes, in fact, the 12 disciples in the Gospels are described simply as Peter and those with him, you know, or Peter and the 11. Um, there, there's no doubt about this, and this was our first point. Peter is presented in the Gospel narratives as first among the disciples. In fact, in Matthew 10, verses 1 and 2, we read, The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, last, 
who betrayed him. Now, the Greek word, this is something we mentioned, but I want to recap it. The Greek word that's translated first here in the text is the word protos, which means first, but it also means chief in terms of ranking or in terms of rank. And I think it's clear, Matt, that in this passage, the meaning is clearly chief. Both Protestant and Catholic New Testament scholars agree on this point, by the way. Quoting from Arndt and Gingrich's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, it's a long title, this is what we read. This, and they're referring to the word first in, um, in Matthew 10, verse 2, this is not meant to indicate the position of Simon in the list, since no other numbers follow, but to single him out as the most prominent of the twelve. It is not insignificant in this regard that Judas Iscariot is listed last. Right, and there's another point in here that's worth making, and I can't remember if we have even made this point before. Uh, it says here in Matthew 10, 1, 2, once again, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, mm-hmm. and Andrew, his brother. Well, Andrew was actually called first. Andrew's called before Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's yeah, not that Matthew's getting his order out of whack. He's just talking about in terms of, like, ranking Prominence. Peter's, Peter's the prominent one. Good point. Ring the bell. No, I don't think we made that point before. Good, good point. Yeah. So, basically, from every angle, by every metric I think that you can use— in looking at the Gospels, in the minds of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter is the most important of the 12 disciples. Peter ranked first among the 12. Okay, now the second point that we came to was this. We noticed that this extraordinary focus on Peter continues in the New Testament accounts of the early church. This is not just in the Gospels. It continues on in the Acts of the Apostles. You read Luke's narrative of the early church in his in the book of Acts. And really, I think, until he becomes Paul's traveling companion, that is Luke, and therefore begins to focus his narrative on the missionary journeys of of the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the Acts of the Apostles almost reads like a biography of Peter. If you think about the earlier chapters, again, until Paul comes on the scene and takes over the narrative, the Acts of the Apostles, it almost reads like a biography of the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 1, it's Peter who leads out to replace Judas as an apostle. In Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the first sermon of the Christian era, welcoming the first Jewish converts into the church. In Acts chapter 3, it's Peter who performs the first public miracle in the temple. In Acts 4, it's Peter who is the first to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus before the Jewish court of the Sanhedrin. In Acts 5, it's Peter who first exercises church discipline in the affair of Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter 8 of Acts, it is Peter who, with John, confirms the first Samaritan converts as, the, uh, you know, as that concentric circle begins to grow from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And then in Acts 10, it's Peter who has chosen by the Holy Spirit to go to the house of Cornelius to preach and to welcome the very first Gentile converts into the church. And then finally, in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, after much debate among all those present about whether Gentiles need to become Jews and begin to keep the Mosaic Code in order to be saved, it is Peter whose statement appears to bring the debate to a close. It's Peter who stands His statement is quoted in full. He's the only one. 
He brings the debate to a close, and then James stands and makes practical application. Given what Peter has said, this is my paraphrase, James says, I think it'd be good if we do this. And he, he lays out a practical application. So, so again, Matt, in Luke's account of the early church, it reads like a biography of Peter. His prominence is so far beyond that of any of the other um, original disciples, apostles. And uh, with all that, again, uh, the, the objection that many might raise is say, well, why does this narrative shift to Paul? And as you just mentioned, it's because that's who Luke is traveling with. Um, why does Luke travel with Paul? There are probably a number of reasons, but one was one possible reason for it was pointed out to me by Steve Ray. I was talking to him just the other day, and he was we were in a conversation about circumcision. And uh, as Paul points out in uh, his letter to the Colossians, mm -hmm. he's saying, "Well, these are the Jews that w that are with me that say hello. These are the people of the uncircumcision who say hello mm -hmm. too." Luke's one of them. <laughs> Luke <laughs> says hi, <laughs> you know. And so Paul would be the kind who would be a lot more comfortable traveling with someone who is uncircumcised. Um, one little one his, tidbit there for you. Then one, then one of his opponents. I mean, I it mean, could have been. You know, Paul also refers to a a, a medical problem that he had in a, in a, in the letter to the Galatians. Paul says, "I, you know, I testify that you would have been willing to take out your own eyes and give them to me." And then at the end, he says, "See what with, with what large letters I sign my name." Like Paul may have had a problem with his eyes. Maybe Luke was a an ophthalmologist. Yeah. And they were know. they both would have been very well studied in Greek. So you've got a yeah. lot of different reasons why Luke would have gone in that direction. But it doesn't none of this is a refutation no. of Peter's no. primacy among the apostles. No, not at all. In fact, when we turn from the book of Acts to St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find the same curious focus on Peter. After Paul's conversion, as he narrates it, he travels to Jerusalem for the first time, and he says it is specifically to spend time with Peter. That is, after his conversion, he's in Damascus, he goes to Arabia for a while, he comes back to Damascus, and then when he travels to Jerusalem for the first time, it's specifically to spend time with Peter. Here's what he says, Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. So um, again, let this kind of soak in a bit. He's telling the Galatians, I went up to Jerusalem, and when I went there, I went to see Peter. Why? Why doesn't he say, I went there to see Bartholomew, or I w went there to see Nathaniel? I went there I went to see the Christians in Jerusalem. Yeah, or I went there to see all the apostles if he wanted to meet with the leaders. Instead, he goes, Instead, he says, I went there to see Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days, and I didn't even see the others except for James. In fact, listen to how St. Paul describes the central facts of the gospel. He, he's relating the facts of the gospel in the, the 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, and strangely, he includes Peter. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. Then, to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And when you think through that, he ra he's raised from the dead, and he appears to Peter, and then to the twelve. A again, why? Why is Peter 
raised in this kind of a way? Or why why is he thought of in this kind of, with this kind of curious, extraordinary prominence? I think that whether we're looking at the Gospels, whether we're looking at the Gospels or the early chapters of Acts, the, that is the history of the early church there, Peter is, there's, there's no way to say, Peter is not presented as merely one of the twelve. He's not even presented as one of the important of the twelve. In the minds of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter ranked first among the apostles, in fact, in the mind of Paul as well, and over the early church. And, and here's the thing, Matt, that really struck me. I, I hope to bring this out. When I was beginning to research these matters, and I was still a Protestant pastor, this is what struck me about the prominence of, of Peter in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts, and in Paul, is what it reveals to us of the mindset of the biblical authors at the time of their writing. And now that, that may sound just like, well, well, who cares? But let me elaborate briefly. The, they're sitting down to write three decades, four decades, in some cases, five decades. They're sitting down to write these narratives, these accounts, the gospel accounts, the Acts, three decades, four, maybe even five decades after the events. And the fact that when they look back on these events, Peter stands out so prominently in the narrative that they want to relate shows us how they thought about Peter at the time that they're writing. Do you follow what I'm saying? I follow exactly what you're saying, and I don't want to go too far down the historical critical road um, in all of this, uh, because uh, some people will look at a passage like this from St. Paul and say, well, this is easily debunkable. Let's look at the gospel accounts of the resurrection and see what the chronology of the appearances of Jesus are. You know, why isn't Mary mm-hmm. Magdalene in this text? What's Paul yeah. trying to say about the suppression of women? <laughs> what yeah. you have to understand is exactly what you just said. It's the way that Paul is trying to tell the story is not as though he is doing a documentary on the right. events of the chronology of the resurrection. He's trying to say Jesus came to Peter first, um, not as a matter of chronology, as a matter of priority. Um, right, right, right. So, right. It's it. it this is revealing to us their mindset at the time they wrote. This is right. how they look back. I use the illustration when we hit on this a few weeks back of, um, you know, if I was writing a history of uh, rock music in the 60s, I, I use the illustration. If I'm writing it now, you know, what, 60 years after the 60s or whatever, if I'm writing it now and, and you find me talking about the Beatles like seven times more than I talk about anyone else, even Freddie and the Dreamers, or, or the turtles, you know, or the, you know, whoever, then you're going to know what I think. That's the point. You're going to know that I think the Beatles were the most, most important. It's going to reveal to you my mindset. And so that's what we have. We and you'll have this- see it more clearly, by the way, with the benefit of hindsight, because in the moment, it's hard to tell exactly who's the most important. Uh, if ever, if all the things are swirling around, right? I mean, right. you could, you can maybe figure out who the most important is. You know, it maybe makes sense that Peter's the most important, but if that didn't stick, then by the time Paul's writing all this stuff, he would have been like, well, we were all there, kind of. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, yeah. it's the, clearly the, that, that distinction that was made by Peter, uh, the, the distinction of Peter as the chief of the apostles that we see in the New Testament is still going strong when Paul's writing. Right. And, and, and later when Matthew and Mark, Luke and John are writing. Right. Okay. So we looked at the Gospels and we looked at the Acts. And then in our last episode, in order to understand why... You know, the question why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought of Peter as they seem to have thought of him. We looked at an event in the life of Peter, so now we're back in the Gospels, that is recorded in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, where Jesus 
speaking directly to Peter, made some extraordinary statements about the special role that Peter was to play in the church that he attended, that he intended to establish and to build. And let's walk through those again quickly. We saw that Jesus, first of all, presents Peter in the role of a prophet when he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is Peter's knowledge that Jesus was the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Second, by changing Peter's name, we, we noted Jesus presents Simon as having a role in the new covenant people of God, similar to the role that Abraham and Jacob had in the old covenant people of God. You remember in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. He was to become the father of the Hebrew people. In Genesis 32, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. He is to become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the two most important, prominent patriarchs of the Old Covenant are men whose names God changed. And, and all we're saying there, well, not all because it's a big deal, when Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, I believe that he's presenting Peter as having a role in the new covenant people of God, the church, that is similar to the role that Abraham or Israel had in the old covenant people of God. He's presenting Peter in the role of a patriarch. It's pretty clear. Uh, And if it wasn't clear enough, uh, how many apostles are there? How many tribes were there? The connection's also made in the book of Revelation that the apostles are, even if you can't grant... Peter primacy, you have to at least understand that what Jesus is setting into motion uh, is, you know, these apostles who are supposed to be connected and fulfillments of the 12 tribes of Israel. You Mm -hmm. see it in the book of Revelation. This is not just his 12 favorite people out of this group of listeners who seem to get what he was saying. Right, 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 right. Yeah, there's an old covenant Israel. There's a new covenant Israel being formed. There's 12 tribes. There are 12 apostles. Yes. Okay, so Peter's presented in the role of a prophet. Peter's presented in the role of a patriarch over the new covenant people of God as as, as holding a position similar to what Abraham and Jacob had, whose names God also changed. But then third, Jesus is presenting Peter as the foundation stone upon which the new covenant temple, the church, is going to be built. Again, we saw in our last episode that in Jewish tradition, it was believed that the Temple of Solomon, where God dwelt, had been built over a massive stone slab that blocked the way to the underworld, that is, you know, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, that kept the waters of chaos at bay. This is what was prominent in the tradition at the time. It was referred to in the Hebrew as the Eben Shatiyah, or the foundation stone. And when Jesus says to Simon, and I tell you, Simon, you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's presenting Peter as, metaphorically, the foundation stone upon which his new covenant temple, the church, is going to be built. And I just want to say quickly, yes, all the apostles are depicted as foundation stones. I think of Paul in Ephesians. You read that the last uh, time we got together in Ephesians chapter 1, where he describes all the apostles as forming stones that are foundation stones. But the point is, Peter apparently assumes a special role in this. And again, if your argument is, 
um, extending just to the apostles in general. If your argument is, you no, know, Peter can't be the foundation, Christ is the foundation, as St. Paul clearly says in Ephesians yeah. 2, um, uh, around uh, verse 20, that you're no longer foreigners and aliens, fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles mm -hmm. and prophets. Um, there is a both and. Christ is our true foundation, but the apostles, he also picks as a foundation. And in this case, Paul says Christ is the chief cornerstone of that building. And even you and I, Ken, are stones in the building. According to 1 Peter so. chapter 2. And yeah, you're right. It's Ephesians 2, not Ephesians 1, as I mistakenly said a moment ago. Yeah. Well, metaphors are fluid. Yes. Okay. Fourth, because there's more, Jesus in that Matthew passage, as we saw, when Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is presenting Peter as the royal steward of the kingdom he's come to establish, the chief steward over the household of God. Now, this one, I know you say the same thing. This one really struck me because I had just simply never seen this connection before. I'd never heard it before. And yet once it was shown to me, it became obvious. The image that Jesus is drawing on here is an image taken from the role of the chief or royal steward in the Old Testament kingdom of David, the household of David. The chief steward was the man who, under the king, was placed in authority over the king's household. The chief steward, the royal steward, he held the keys. He was in charge. He would open and no one could shut. He would close and no one could open. He was the king's man uh, running the palace, as it were, okay? People have used uh, other metaphors like prime minister or the... Chief the, of staff. Yeah, or the vizier, you know, the... The royal vizier. Yeah, the royal vizier, okay? I kind of like that title. You like that? Yeah, like I think that? I, could, I... I wish my title at Coming Home Network was Grand Royal vizier. vizier. It looks cooler than whatever's on your actual business card. Yeah. Shorter, too. I think it says Grand Inquisitor now, actually. <laughs> well, I better okay. watch what I say. Yes. Okay, in Isaiah 22, we read of one of these chief stewards named Shebna being replaced by another named Eliakim. And again, just to remind our viewers, our hearers, listen to how this office is described. In that day, I will call Eliakim the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your belt on him and will commit your authority to his hand. So there's authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, okay? He has authority. He functions as a father to the people of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I mean, it just add this up so far. Jesus is speaking to Peter here at Caesarea Philippi, in the presence of the other disciples who were standing there listening to this. And he's presenting Peter in a prophetic role. He's presenting Peter as patriarch of the new covenant people of God, changing his name, as the foundation stone of a new covenant temple that he's prepared to build, as chief steward, as royal steward over the kingdom that he's come to inaugurate. I mean, yeah. it, it, that's a lot of stuff packed in there. There's a lot of stuff. And I just want to point out something that I hope that uh, non-Catholics don't misunderstand about what we believe about the Pope. The Pope does not replace Jesus. He does not override Jesus. He doesn't get veto power. He doesn't get any of that stuff. He's a steward. Um, and a steward mm -hmm. only has power because somebody more powerful than them has given them some authority 
to take care of something that's not really actually theirs. They're just a steward of it. Right? Yeah, and and, and it, that's what's ahead. going on with the papacy. The papacy is not a replacement for Christ. It is a guarding of the gifts of Christ. Peter, the steward has no power unless somebody more powerful than the steward has invested the power in them. And in fact, his job is to take what he has given and to preserve it and to hand it on. His job is to be a steward. I mean, that one word just says it so well. Because in the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus has the key to the to the kingdom of David. Well, and then we also read, as we're, we're going to see in a moment, he gives the keys to all the apostles in certain senses. But here, again, there has to be meaning to the fact that standing in the presence of the others and speaking to Peter in the first person, he says, and I give you the key. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Great. Okay, fifth. By using the terms binding and loosing, Jesus is presenting Peter in the role of chief rabbi within the new, within a new covenant Israel that he's come to establish. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, quoting from a Protestant um, scholarly source, word studies in the New Testament, listen to this. No other terms were in more constant use in the rabbinic canon law than those of binding and loosing. They represented the legislative and judicial powers of the rabbinic office. These powers Christ now conferred or transferred in their reality to his apostles, the first here to Peter. Okay, so he's presented after the image of a rabbi and the chief rabbi within the new covenant kingdom as Jesus looks to Peter and speaks to Peter directly and says, you will bind and loose. And then finally, one more. The use of these terms, binding and loosing, by these terms, Jesus also is presenting Peter in the role of a forgiver of sins, and I suppose it would be fair to say the chief forgiver of sins. Uh, because th- this language, binding and loosing, it's language that Jesus uses in Matthew 18 of the authority given to the apostles to forgive sins. And this is how I think of it, Matt, as the authority descends from on high, Okay, remember the account of Jesus healing the paralytic in John in Matthew chapter 9? This is where Jesus said to the the Pharisees who were standing around that were appalled because he said to the man your sins are forgiven. Remember Jesus said, "The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins." Okay? The Father has given authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, in John 20, after the resurrection, Jesus breathes on his disciples giving them the authority to forgive sins. This, this is when he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And they are retained. So all, all of the apostles are given this authority. But here again, first comes Peter. First, Jesus says it to Peter when he gives him the keys to the kingdom and says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I have a practical question for Ken, for you as a former Baptist pastor. Sure. Um, if you had read this passage from John 20 and you saw yourself as, you know, entrusted and ordained to preach the gospel, um, to be a, a rabbi of mm-hmm. sorts mm-hmm. for your flock and all these other things, a steward of the gospel. And one of your congregation came to you and said, Pastor Ken, I need to confess my sins to you so you can forgive them. What would you have said? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's kind of embarrassing to look back on these things, on some of these things and, and, and reflect on them because, what well, you know, we all interpret the word of God 
from within the context of a tradition of some sort. That is, or I'll put it this way, by reading the Bible, we've all come piece by piece to a, to, to a worldview, to a way of looking at things. And within that worldview, there are plenty of passages that are very easy. They all fit with our worldview really well. And then there are a few that are not easy. And we have the tendency to kind of play them down or ignore them or put them on a shelf or say, I'll think about that uh, later, or to reinterpret them in strange ways, um, ways that might make the ears of all who hear tingle. And, <laughs> and, and this is an example, Matt, because the typical way of understanding that passage as an evangelical because it sounds so Catholic. He says, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you retain. Not even new sins I forgive through you. Yeah. I mean, I wish you would have given, him a, given us who, that out, right? Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Okay, it sounds exactly like the Catholic view, okay? But the typical evangelical understanding is to say, basically, well, all Jesus is saying to the apostles is that they will go out and preach the gospel, and those who believe will have their sins forgiven, and those who don't believe won't. That's not what it says, though. I know, it's not what it says. I, I, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. I, I just did says. not have a place for this. There was no shelf to put this one on in my... And all I can say is I'm glad that the Bible is a very, very, very big book because, you know, you could be a Protestant pastor and you could preach all your life and every... You can avoid this words. for a long time. Yeah like, yeah, like a million years, basically. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's put this all together then. In this event, this event recorded in Matthew 16, in the life of Peter, and really in the lives of all the disciples, because they were there to witness it, I think we begin to understand why when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sat down to write their memoirs decades later, decades after the events that they wanted to you know, enumerate, why they portray Peter as holding the special place among them and in the early church that he did. This is why. This, this, this is the event that launched it. Okay, now what we need to do though today is we want to look at a couple of supporting passages that we haven't got, gotten to yet. So we can move on next week to look at the early church fathers and uh, the development of the doctrine within the church, okay? Yeah, and um, I'm glad you call these uh, supporting passages. Uh, and and I think it's important before we dive into these, sure. these last few things to, to point out that you can't just take even something like Matthew 16, 18 and say, boom, the papacy, right no. there. It's all there in this verse, the whole thing. You can't. You can't just take one of these things. But the cumulative effect of all of them, and, and even the ones that you're going to say by themselves mm -hmm. don't necessarily count as proofs. But when you have everything else all together, what you just mentioned, the whole rundown of everything, mm -hmm. then these just sort of, see, these fit with that picture. Yeah, they they're, fit. They're, they're pieces that fall into the puzzle that make it make sense and round it out. And uh, I don't want to launch out on this yet, too, but this is true of most of the doctrines of the church. You know, you 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 read through the New Testament and, you know, um, well, it, it, it's the accumulative effect of things. So you're right. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. A few more passages in the Gospels now that reinforce the impression that we get from Matthew 16 and from the prominence of Peter in the Gospels in general, the prominence of Peter in the book of Acts. And so we want to look at these quickly before we look at the development of the doctrine in the church starting next week. The first is John 1. Um, 40 through 42. Okay, in this passage, Jesus prophesies from the moment that he meets Simon that Simon is going to become the rock upon which the new covenant temple of God will be built. 
Um, reading now from John. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. There, there you go. Andrew, Andrew, the first called. Yeah, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, this doesn't add anything to what we've seen so far. I, 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 I present it only because it reinforces our sense that Simon, for some strange reason, is going to become someone extraordinarily important within the kingdom of God. And I know you've got more from John, but bear in mind also that most scholars think John is the latest of the Gospels. Yeah. And if it was John the Apostle who was there for all the you know, top three events mm-hmm. that involved him and James mm-hmm. and Peter, if this is that same John, which we have a strong mm-hmm. sense that mm-hmm. it probably is, then he would have witnessed the primacy of Peter even in his inner circle. That's right. So this, yeah. is, an, this is a powerful testimony. Even the little things in yeah. John are important. Okay, the second text we're going to look at, we're going to look at three, is John 21, 15 through 17, which we could go into in some detail, but let me just quickly summarize. This is the account where after the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter. It's, it's that famous account. Peter had denied the Lord three times. In this account, Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? And then he charges Peter three times, feed my lambs, watch over my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay, it's a powerful account. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Watch over my sheep. Feed my sheep. This is what he says, um, in order, feed my lambs, watch over my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay, on the one hand, again, I want to assert that this doesn't prove in any way that Peter was appointed over the entire church, these functions of Pope, and I, I think it's possible to make too much of this passage. After all, all of the apostles were appointed to feed and to watch over the flock of Jesus. Okay, th- th- this is on the one hand. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul admonished the elders, the presbyters, of the church in Ephesus, and he uses the same language Jesus uses here with Peter. This is Paul speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, bishops, to watch over the church of God. Watch over is the same word that he uses, you know, to, to shepherd the people of God. To watch over the people of God which he has obtained with his own blood. So, it's possible to make too much of this passage. On the other hand, I want to say, again, this is sort of the pattern we have. The fact that this account is recorded for us and the fact that Jesus speaks these words apparently in the presence of the other disciples, again, it supports our impression of Peter as holding a special place. I mean, why do we have all these accounts of Jesus speaking these powerful words to Peter, even if they apply in, you know, to some degree to all the apostles. Yeah, it's it's powerful. And again, you know, this is the same Jesus who himself had referred to uh, himself as the as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And now he's telling Peter to do the same. And even if Paul, uh, you know, is telling everybody to be good shepherds, uh, who's a church leader, you've, you've got that. You know, there's there's just a lot in John's gospel. Uh, it, what's funny is that. Shortly after that, and this is, you know, mm-hmm. don't want to take it too down, down too much of a side road, but in that same story, um, he 
basically gives Peter sort of a premonition, a prophecy of his own death. And then right. Peter turns around and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is John. Mm-hmm. This is John's gospel, right? <laughs> John's referring to himself. And there's this whole mysterious thing about, well, yeah. what what's going to happen to what's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, you know what? Yeah. If I want him to remain alive until you know I come back, it, that's none of your none of your business, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Um, but even if I mean, John is the last one, the oldest one, the one who's around the longest, and even John is pointing to Peter. Um, I think yeah. that's significant. And again, it's it's a cumulative situation where from the moment Jesus meets Simon, he says, "So you so you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas." Um, and, and then in Matthew 16, it's Peter that he looks at and speaks all these powerful words and presents him in, in terms of all these powerful metaphors from the Old Testament. Um, and then here, it's Peter who denies him, yes. And it's Peter who is restored. And it's Peter to whom Jesus says, take care of my flock, you know, watch over them, feed them. And then, and then the last passage we're going to look at is Luke 22, which I think does add something concrete. Luke 22, 24 through 34, which we're not going to read, but we all know the passage. In this passage, Luke describes a dispute that broke out among the disciples that is about, quote, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, okay? It's a dispute. And catch the context. They're in the upper room. This is on the night of Jesus' arrest. The Last Supper has just taken place in which Jesus has spoken of his body which will be broken for them for the forgiveness of sins, his blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And the 12, what are they doing? They're, they're beginning jogging to argue. in for position, right? Yeah, they're beginning to argue. Which, which of us is the greatest? Which of us is really the greatest? Okay, first of all, in response, Jesus reminds them that authority in the kingdom of God doesn't function quite like authority in the kingdoms of man. In the kingdoms of man, those at the top inevitably lorded over those under them. In the kingdom that he has come to establish, the greatest will be the one who serves, he says. Okay. But then he says to them this, and I'm reading now. You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Of Israel. In other words, I mean, this is my guess, but it, it, it's sort of like he's saying at this point, first of all, he corrects them. He says, hey, look, you need to understand authority within the kingdom of Christ is all about service. Okay, but having said that, he says, come on, stop your whining. I mean, each of you is going to have a position of authority in the kingdom of God. You're going to sit on 12 thrones. I mean, you're going to have positions of power and authority within the kingdom that I'm that I'm inaugurating. But then he turns to Peter. Again, it's Peter. And apparently in the presence of them all, this is what he says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And again, yeah, if you're looking for mathematical proof of things, this doesn't prove that Peter at the time is the Pope. In fact, let me say something that may be, uh, that, that may be disagreed with by, by others. I'm sure it isn't. I don't think Peter was a Pope at this time. I don't, I, I don't believe he's acting as a Pope at this time. I mean, notice that in Matthew 16, Matt, Jesus is speaking in the future tense. 
on this rock, I will build my church. I mean, he's looking forward through the passion, through his death, through the resurrection, to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on the church. That is when the church is born, and he's talking about the future. So, no, I don't believe that Peter, uh, you know, was just instantaneously jumping up and acting like a pope. But I don't you even, don't have to. I don't even think he understood it. You don't have to, because neither does Jesus say to them, um, you know, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, and you will get very busy preaching the gospel, so therefore you will found with your brothers the diaconate. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he doesn't yeah. he, You know yeah. what I'm saying? There's, there's not that— You will found with your brothers the diaconate. I, I believe that will happen in Acts chapter 6. <laughs> right. It doesn't, it, Jesus has not set up no. the whole administrative— infrastructure of how this is all going to work out as a matter of fact you know and we'll we could probably do a whole like 12-part series on confession when he says you know mm-hmm. who sins you forgive they are forgiven he's not saying so here's what i want you to do i want you to build boxes yeah. why do you sit on one side well there'll be a screen yeah. and the other person will sit on the other side and this is how it'll work so, some kind of a grill you might want to carve it maybe out a grill like really so yeah, yeah. he's not setting out all the administrative pieces no. of how this is going to work. He's not even going to say, "I'm thinking, Peter, I will call you Rock, but I'd prefer that you go by the official title, Pope, if people ask what your job is." Yes, and uh, none and, of this has none of this has to be there for it. Yeah, to, and another angle on what you're saying is is this: I don't even think the theology is there and understood. You know, when you think about the many things Jesus said to his disciples about his own death and resurrection, and they stood there stupefied with their eyes like crossing and whatnot, you know, they didn't understand. There's so many things that he was saying to them that they didn't understand. And then he says, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into the truth. I have no problem with the idea that the apostles only over time began to realize what many things meant, not just the role that Peter would have, but the Trinity, you know, the deity of Christ, you know, so many things. Well, they, and even if they did understand, until those things are officially and formally challenged, they don't have to come up with words for them even. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, think about, how many, think about how many new words we got during the course of the pandemic who came, that came into, like, immediate overnight universal use, and it wasn't because we right. invented a new way to figure out what it means to be human. It's just that, okay— Let's just apply these principles in a way that makes sense in this particular time to understand what's happening with the pandemic. Yeah, and believe that the Spirit of God was leading them to do that, like to institute the diaconate and and so forth. But I may be yeah. sticking my neck way out here, but I'll but I'll tell you, if someone had walked up to Bartholomew three days after the day of Pentecost and said, um, "Define God for me," I I don't believe for an instant he would have said God exists as one God in essence, you know, eternally existing as three divine persons, the Father, Son, Jesus, and the consubstantial with the Father. Yeah, you know, two natures. He yeah. would have agreed if you would have proposed it to him that way. Yeah, right? yeah if you would have sat down and explained, was it, that's, yeah, that's what I think, you know, yes. Okay. But again, again, this is, this goes back to the whole question of, you know, I would have said, show me the papacy in the Bible. You're not going to find yeah. the papacy as, you know, lived out by Gregory the Great. Yeah. in the pages of Scripture. But you don't have to, nor does the Catholic Church claim that you have to in order mm-hmm. for it to be understood that way. Nor do you find, by the way, uh, youth ministers and worship leaders in the Bible. There are a whole bunch of things that we just understand administratively evolve based on mm-hmm. the needs of a community. And, well... Okay, and we're going to be looking at the early community hole, next week, so we'll move on to that. Let me just say finally about the situation in Luke, though, where they're arguing about who is the greatest... 
Jesus says, look, greatness in the kingdom of God is not like you think it is. And then he suddenly speaks to Peter and says, Satan wants to sift you. When you have returned, strengthen your brothers. You know, and, and all I can say is this, Matt, when I was the senior pastor of a Baptist church, if I had been sitting there with the deacon board, okay, with the board of leadership within the church and my associate pastor, and you saw me turn to my associate pastor in the congregation and look at directly at him and say, look, troublesome times are coming and Satan wants to sift you. But listen, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. I, I think that everyone would know that I was speaking to someone that I was looking to for special leadership within the church. And, and so it, it, it's a cumulative matter again, and this passage in Luke simply adds to that. There are a hundred other passages like it. You know, when uh, the they're looking for the temple tax, the officials don't say, let's go ask James the Lesser uh, since he's yeah. second in command. No, they yeah. ask Peter. There, there are a hundred other episodes like this that just illustrate that uh, it's clear to the gospel writers, it's clear to those outside of the band of disciples that Peter is the guy, as a matter of fact. I mean, yeah. even in the denial, um, it's clear that everybody knows who Peter is. He's the second in command, and he's hanging around the trial. Um, it's 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 yeah. just clear throughout. The, and we talk all the time, uh, we talked all the time during our series on on uh, Sola Scriptura about the perspicacious nature. Like, anybody should be able to pick up the Bible and see clearly what it means. Well, if you do that, you should see pretty clearly that Peter, Peter head of the class, yeah. maybe a dummy, may make some terrible decisions, but he's he's yeah. the guy. He's the guy. And maybe a good way that I can say it, my final line, line on this will be to say that while none of this is a proof in any kind of a mathematical sense, all of it fits a pattern. And the pattern that it presents to us is one of Peter being singled out and held up and described in really in all the accounts, basically being described in such a way that we are not surprised at all when we open the Acts of the Apostles and we find him leading the early church. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you that the leadership models that I saw in the churches that I attended did not fit this idea. When we said that someone was anointed, we usually meant they were a really talented public speaker who could really move hearts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? We didn't think of this idea of like this, of it as being an office of authority in the same way. I just didn't have, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we can go down this road a little bit further when we talk about how the early church actually lived this principle out. But I think it's important to, to think about what, what fits this picture. You know, what fits this picture in the present age? So, Yeah, and we'll stuff. be doing that next week. Yes, we have much still to cover. Um, this is just a summary to launch into the next set, sort of major phase uh, since we've been spending so much time in the scriptures to kind of wrap them up and put them all together. Um, again, we hope that you're enjoying this, and even if you're not enjoying it, we hope that you at least, like, have constructive things to say uh, to weigh in on the conversation. Uh, please do visit us at chnetwork.org, especially click on that connect button and come visit us in the online community uh, to have conversations with us about these topics there. Click subscribe, share the videos. Um, we'd love to hear from you. I'm Matt Swaim. Thank you, Ken Hensley. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. <laughs>